the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 478 of the podcast. Carrie here. I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Today's episode is brought to you by Generis. You can learn how to accelerate generosity in your church with a free 45-minute discovery session at generis.com slash carry and by the Unstuck Group. Get a clear picture of where your church is today by taking the Unstuck Church Assessment for free by going to the Unstuck Group slash carry. Well, my guest today is Bob Lodick. We are going to talk about how to create a profitable online platform on a crowded internet. I know a lot of you are entrepreneurs. You've got a little thing going on or you want to launch something online and you're like, okay, that's great. It's one thing to get followers. How do you get money? Um, Finding financial freedom. He's an expert along with his wife in personal finance and uh, some fresh metrics for finance, different ways of thinking about your money. And for some of you, you think about it all the time. I think you're going to get some fresh takes in this episode. And for some of you, it's like, yeah, that's something I got to get under control. Uh, I think you're going to love this episode. So Bob is the founder of Seed Time, and he had a life-changing moment we're going to talk about at age 20, where he found himself completely out of money with a broken down vehicle in the middle of the road. And well, things are a lot different today. For the last 14 years, he's an award-winning blogger and podcaster, a CEPF, And he has been a trusted voice for Christians wanting to find financial freedom the way God intended. He is the author of Simple Money, Rich Life, and has shared timeless wisdom and practical strategies with more than 50 million readers, listeners, and students through his blog, online courses, and Seed Time Money podcast. Bob and his wife, Linda, live in Franklin, Tennessee with their three kids, and you can learn more at SeedTime.com. Well, I sat down with Jim Shepard, who's the principal at Generis, and I asked him this question, what role does vision play in developing a culture of generosity? And here's what he said. Yeah, I think by far, Kerry, the number one thing I see is on autoplay. They're doing the same thing almost without thinking about it on a weekly basis. And that's where the problem is. You're always saying the same thing. It doesn't land anywhere, doesn't get you anywhere. I think the fix is really easy. Just be very focused, be very intentional. Everything else in your weekly flow is very strategic, very intentional, very mapped out. Do the same thing with your giving moment. I would have what I call a 32, 12, and 4 rhythm every year. Have a calendar for your 52 weeks of the year and make sure that you follow that so that you know what you're doing. 32 times a year, talk about the scriptural backdrop for giving. 12 times a year, minimum, once a month. Talk about the impact, show videos, the impact of what happens when you give here. Four times a year, have someone from your board or your finance team talk about why you can trust us when you give here. Trust is one of the underlying elements, and I would do that. So the 32, 12, and 4, there's four open ones there that you can do anything else you want to with them. But that's what I would do. Just be very focused. Be very intentional with it. So if you want to learn more about how to create a generous culture, and I'm having lots of kinds of conversations with pastors who are uneasy, that giving is held steady while attendance is dropped. And uh, if you want to get ahead of that and try to figure out how to really steward generosity for the long term, 
Why not take their free 45-minute discovery session? You can set one up for yourself at generis.com slash carry. That's G-E-N-E-R-I-S dot com slash carry. And also, leaders tend to see decline on the horizon first through a variety of signs. People are leaving and not coming back. Yep, that's been the story lately. And maybe you're not reaching new people. Or you recognize the need to start building a hybrid ministry strategy for the future, but you don't really know where to start. Or maybe the ministry of today isn't matching the skills your staff currently have or the positions you're going to need for the future. All in all, that can leave you feeling stuck and looking for a clear path forward. If that sounds like you, I want to recommend the Unstuck Group. Their proven process helps pastors assess ministry health, clarify a vision for the future, and create a team structure and action plans to see through it. I've used Tony several times in my leadership, I got to tell you. Uh, Tony Morgan and the Unstuck Group can really help you. So if you want a clearer picture of where your church is today, start here. Take the Unstuck Church Assessment for free by going to theunstuckgroup.com slash carry. That's theunstuckgroup.com slash C-A-R-E-Y. And thank you to everybody who has taken the time to do ratings and reviews on the podcast. I'm so grateful for that. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode or some in the past, please take a moment just to do that. It really helps get the word out. And uh, well, we read all of them and I'm really grateful for your partnership in this podcast. And with all that said, here is my conversation with Bob Lodick. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Carrie, thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege to be here. I'm excited to chat. Well, I read your book. You asked me to endorse it. I thought it was great. And I thought, you know, we could do we could do a fun interview on this because money is something that impacts everybody's life. And you've got a bit of a different take on it than I've seen. And uh, you also got a fascinating story. So it sort of starts because I'm always interested in how people turn sort of their story into a day job, which is yeah. what you've done, right? This is what you yeah. do full time. Not only yeah. write books, but you help people, you coach people on money. And uh, we got a young, a lot of young listeners listening. And when you were 20, you found yourself stuck in the middle of a busy road um, where a lot of people get stuck. <laughs> what yeah. happened? Yeah. So, yeah, this was kind of my turning point moment, if you will, in my financial world. Because up until this point, I thought I knew everything about money. Like I had worked at a bank for a few years. I grew up wanting to okay. be an accountant. I was kind of one of those people. And the reality was, is that I was kind of a complete financial mess. I just didn't know it or I didn't believe it. And so this particular day, I'm driving down this road in South Florida, um, and it's right in front of a minor league ballpark. And there was a game that was starting like a half an hour. So there's a lot of traffic and car just driving down this road. All of a sudden, the car just stops, like right in the middle of the road. It stopped so fast that I couldn't even pull over to the side. So so I'm instantly sitting there. Like you said, I'm 20 years old. I know nothing about cars. I don't know what's going on here. But I start turning the key, trying it again and again. It's just not starting. And, you know, a broken down car, it's like, yeah, that's an issue. But this was becoming a really big issue because the reason I was driving is because I was actually going, I just picked up my paycheck and I was going to the bank to, to then take it to my landlord to pay my rent that was due in three hours. And again, not that big of a deal. And if I would have been late, it would have been a $50 late fee. And, you know, and that's not that big of a deal for most people. But for me, this was a big deal because that paycheck I just gotten was barely enough to cover my rent payment. And so if I missed uh, that with that three hour window, then now it's like, all right, I can't afford this $50 late payment. I had $7 in my checking account. I had no savings. I had one credit card. 
that was wow. about two hundred and sixty-four dollars from being maxed out. So it's like you get you get the picture. Like all of the right. stuff is just kind of happening now. And I'm sitting in this car thinking, what am I going to do? Like, how do I get this car towed, repaired? And then get back to the bank to get, like, how do I do all this stuff in three hours? And then to add all this, my two buddies were coming down. The next day, I had to pick them up from the airport to celebrate my 21st birthday because it was the next day. It's like all this stuff. And I, I'm like sitting in this car as cars are driving by. I was looking out the window, looking at me, and I'm realizing I'm in a mess. And I didn't even realize I was in a mess, you know? And so it was that moment where I prayed out to God, cried out to God. I'm like, Lord, I don't know what's going on. I need help. If you have a better way, like I want to hear it. And that was kind of the thing that kicked it off for me, just realizing I had a problem and asking God for help. Hmm. Okay. So you had a problem. Um, what happened? Because you're not there now. And you built, like, what was your day job? Did you have day jobs before you did what you, well, first of all, describe seed time. Yeah. And where you are now, and then we'll kind of reverse engineer. Yeah. So, long story short, at this point, um, I am currently a podcaster, blogger, writer, soon to be author. All these things, yeah. helping people with money, and that's what seed time is. Um, it was just kind of birthed out of that. My, hmm. out of that moment, that broken down moment, I realized I need to learn about this. So I began reading every book I could find on money, and I even began reading the Bible. Found out the Bible hmm. actually talks about money, and I was kind of fascinated by this intersection. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to start a website where I talk about this stuff. And this is way back in 2007. And so that's what I started to do. That's when Seed Time was born. And then there's some other crazy stories of how we got from there to being full-time and all that. But but that's the gist of it. Well, um, take us there. So, I mean, you you went back to your day job. You started reading books. on yeah. on, And then when did you start your website? 2007. Yeah, so, so that 2007. Was... Yeah. I didn't know what a blog was at the time. I ended up telling a buddy of mine, Hey, I have this idea. I want to write a new article each day and put it up. And he's like, that's a blog, man. <laughs> I don't know what a blog is. It's 2007. How many people know what a blog is? So he uh... taught me what a blog is. And then I went to blogger.com and started one. And, uh, and that was kind of the birth of the whole thing. But, um, but yeah, all right. Where what was it? Like a, like a follow me as I figure this out? Or, hey, oh, I yeah. just learned this and I'm sharing it with you? Or what was Very it? Very much a, I'm learning this, um, come along with me. Not a, I'm the expert on all things money. It was very much, this is my story. I'm figuring out. If you want to learn, let's do it together type of thing. And did anybody show up in 2007? It's funny. That's the same I mean, year I started a blog in 2007. There you go. You get it. So 2007, it was probably my, my mom and my grandma. But then, uh -huh. you know, as time went on, more and more, you know, I guess they told a whole bunch of people because more and more people started showing up. And um, yeah, and it got to the point. Yeah, do you want me to go into the story of how we got to full-time? Yeah, yeah, I want to hear that. I really right, am. So, this, let's see so how was, I built this. Yeah, this is a pretty crazy thing for me. But um, so yeah, 2007 to 2000 and, um, you know, eight, somewhere in there, I'm working on this blog. And somewhere in that point, I think it was, yeah, 2008, I got a pink slip. I was working at a brokerage financial services company and we merged with another company. And basically my boss calls me into um, me and everybody in our department into the conference room and says, Hey guys, you're all getting laid off. We merged. They don't need us anymore. We're all getting laid off. And so um, I went home and told Linda and I started looking for another job. And meanwhile, as I'm mm -hmm. looking for a job, I just kind of sensed, sensed God kind of leading me to not look for another job, <laughs> which felt 
very oh, that's always a good message to bring to your spouse. Hey, I feel led not to seek employment. To become a yeah. professional blogger, honey, in 2008. <laughs> yeah, so um, so that's kind of where I was with all this. I kind of like felt God kind of nugging, t- tugging me in this direction. And I was so embarrassed by this that I didn't tell anyone. And so everybody's asking me, well, what are you going to do? And I'm like, oh, you know, I just wouldn't tell anybody <laughs> what I was going to do. Because all my coworkers were finding other jobs and all this stuff. And I'm just, you know, quite like trying to hide so I don't have to tell them I'm going to be a pro blogger. I'm going to go make money on the internet. Yeah. yeah. Like everybody You know, and to add to the absurdity, like I had been doing this about a year and working, I don't know, 10 hours a week on this blog and making a total of $100 per month at that point. So it was just absolutely insane. Just completely crazy. But it was something I felt like the Lord was leading me to do. And so we did it. We jumped ship and I became a full-time blogger in 2008, uh, even though the blog couldn't even um, maybe pay our electric bill at that point, you know? Hmm. And um, the fascinating How are you making $100 a month? How did you figure that out? How was I? Google AdSense. I think I just had AdSense on the blog or something like that. There you go. Yeah. So that was how I started the whole thing and, you know, at the very beginning. But um, so yeah, so barely making anything. And then, um, the amazing thing, like the kind of God story part of all this is that nine months later, we were making more from the blog than I was my previous day job. Like, and it wow, it made no sense to me. And then six months later, it was double that. Like it was just a journey that I'm like, I couldn't have written this. Like I, you know. Yeah. So can you break that down? In what how did way? that happen? Well, like, how did you go to making your salary nine months later and then after that double? I couldn't do it again. Like, I mean, I just put it it. in the hands of this was a miracle that God was just doing. But all that said, I mean, I can talk about some of the specific things I did. But, you know, again, we're going back to 2008, so the relevancy may not be super strong. But Mm. listen, I um, was there and I was not making my salary online. In fact, I was making zero dollars. So I'm very curious. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the, the, the way I started, I happened to have a mentor who was um, really proficient in SEO. And so that was kind of like the big thing that got me moving off the ground. Like I, I had an inside knowledge of how to rank articles in Google and whatever else. Um, and so that helped, but obviously like there's a, there's a transition point. And I think, I think the lesson to take away from this, like if there's some value to add for anybody listening, it's that that first year, uh, I think it's like this with a lot of businesses. You lay a foundation, you know what I mean? Or you plant a seed in the ground and you might see a seedling, but you're not really seeing any fruit yet, you know? So an apple tree doesn't really bear fruit till about five years or something, you know? So you have a a, a while before you start seeing some fruit. And in this case, I think that year-long period was foundation building stuff. From an SEO perspective, this makes a whole lot of sense, but I think it applies to probably starting a podcast or any other kind of venture like that. Um, where there's a season of just kind of building a foundation where you might not see the fruit that you want. And and I think that that's what that one-year period was. And then as we transitioned, I now had a lot more time and focused energy to put towards the business, uh, coupled with, I think, some unique open doors that God, you know, led me to. And um, yeah, and I think the rest is history. So to get nitty-gritty, was it the Google, you just got so much traffic because of your SEO and optimizing all of that, that Google AdSense just started to multiply? Or did you start offering products, services? Like what happened in that yeah. year where you saw yeah, the, none of, the rise? None, no products, no services. At the beginning, like my first probably 
five, six years of being a professional blogger was uh, all Google AdSense. Like that was wow. it. Um, and, you know, and I, I'm a little bit of an analytical guy. I'm a little bit of an engineer mindset a little bit. And so I broke it down and I got really nerdy about, all right, where are the best ad placements? What are the best colors to use on the ads? Like, you know, all these different things. Um, and then on top of that, like, all right, certain traffic from different articles uh, might do better with ads in these places. Like, so I got really analytical and nerdy on all that. And, and I think that helped to a degree. Um, but yeah, at the beginning, like we were not diversified at all because probably 90% of our traffic came from Google and 90% of our earnings came from Google AdSense. Okay, kind great. Of a scary and, place to be. Well, let's, let's pull that thread a little bit more. So that's the first number of years, half dozen yeah. years. Mm -hmm. And then how did you diversify and what have you done since then? Yeah. So next step was, um, I realized, uh, affiliate, uh, there began more and more affiliate programs for different things. And I realized, right. wait a minute, AdSense is just a middleman. I can just go direct to the company that AdSense is promoting on my site and get paid more. And so then I began kind of get involved in more affiliate programs for different things. So if it was whatever, some financial tool or budgeting software or whatever else, it's like, I can have ads, AdSense put an ad up there and I'll make a dollar a click or I can go direct to them the budgeting software or something like that and I can get $15 if somebody clicks over and buys. And so it just made more sense. Right. And right. so I began doing more and more like affiliate type stuff, typically review articles. Um, you know, I, I liked that approach because I never wanted, you know, especially now and even then, the real hard sell kind of twist your arm type affiliate stuff. Like that doesn't work, you know, but mm -hmm. like an honest review of someone who's used the product. And this is why I like, why I don't like about it. Like that type of stuff, you know, worked great then. And I still think it works good now. Like just being really mm -hmm. honest about it. And in fact, fun fact, we had certain products. I didn't write a lot of negative reviews, but there were some where it's like, I just said, I don't like this because of this, this, and this, but we've used an affiliate link. Cause like, why not? And some of those things actually converted really, really well. So, um, <laughs> I so don't like, like you this can, product. It's yeah. disappointed me. But if you want it, here it is. And then people go out and buy it and you get a commission. Yeah. So it's funny how that okay. works. Funny. All right. And then, and then uh, to where you are today. Yeah. So now we've transitioned and, you know, we still do some affiliate stuff. We actually don't have any AdSense on our website at this point. Uh, but now we're primarily focused on our own products. So we have, mm -hmm. you know, a variety of different courses and we have um, a live financial class that we're doing. Um, and so stuff like that is kind of our main focus of our revenue at this point. It feels like you evolved very well with the web. That sounds like you just gave a history of the internet and online marketing bit. for the last uh, almost <laughs> 15 years, right? That seems very uh, yeah. reasonable. But okay, let me ask you this finance. That's not an empty space. I mean, you've got Dave Ramsey, who's got millions of listeners a day. You've got who's Mr. That? Money What's Mustache on the internet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Who is that? Who is that? Yeah. Yeah. He's been a guest on this podcast or will be by the time this is up. And we've had a lot of his folks on. You've got Mr. Money Mustache. You've got mm. like, this is, this is crowded space. You've got yeah. a lot of people. And I know for, I'm thinking of the leader who's listening going, yeah, I'm going to get into the leadership space. Good luck with that. Or I'm going to get into the finance space or the dieting space or the whatever space. How did you carve out a niche? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a big world. It's a big internet. And there's a lot of people out there. And I think when it is a crowded space, I think that's often a clue that um, 
there's a lot of demand in that space. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the case of some of the people you mentioned, and I mean, I could name hundreds of others, there's a lot of people in the space. I think the key is really getting specific about who the person is that you're talking to. Um, because as someone scales and grows, they can't be as super specific. It tends to get wider of the net of the people that they're talking to. So it's kind of like, you know, a jet ski versus a cruise ship. Like there's advantages to both, but a jet ski can be a lot more nimble and can be a lot more targeted. And, um, and so I think that that's something that we've just focused on, you know, we're specifically targeted towards a Christian. Like we talk about money as if, like to someone who we assume has the same beliefs as us. And that cuts mm. out a whole bunch of people. But by doing so, um, we get to speak more accurately to them than I think a lot of other people can. And um, and I think that's helped us a lot. Have you defined it beyond that? Like, are you picking, you know, we talked about this with Jasmine Starr a few years ago on the mm-hmm. podcast, but defining your ideal client is he a 20-year-old male a day away from his 21st birthday with a broken-down vehicle at the side of the road and $7 in his bank account? Is it that specific? Is it broader than that? Like, how, how have you handled that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we can go into a little bit more of that target. I would, I would like to, that. yeah. This is important yeah. stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, we're, we're more specific about it internally. We don't make this super pronounced, but yeah, it's like we are speaking to someone who's probably a millennial, probably, let's say, maybe Gen Z, 20 to 45. Like, that's our main group. That That's our bread and butter who we thrive with and who we can really help. And we're also not, um, we're not the best uh, option for people who are just in complete financial mess in despair. Um, right. And the reason is, is because that's not my world. Like I, you know, like I shared some of where I came from, but um, I've never been one of those people who, whatever, has had my uh, cars repossessed and all this stuff like where it's like, that's a world that I don't understand. And therefore that's not who I can help the most, but I can help someone who's really hungry and who wants to do the work and who just believes that there's a lot more possible. And that's kind of the the mindset of the person who I think we can help the best. There's a counterintuitive sense, because I, I agree with you, Bob, but there's a counterintuitive sense in which people would say, but wait, I have to reach everybody. So you think about the church leaders listening, the business leaders listening. There is yeah. a, a temptation, and I've wrestled this with this in my own life, where it's like, no, but I, I get that, but I want to reach everybody. Um, and it's really hard to say, like I when I started this podcast, I picked two targets. I don't think I've said yeah. this out loud, and I better tell him before it airs. But I picked, uh, I picked uh, the average pastor of a church of 200 or less, and I kind of have a little backstory. And I picked Craig Groeschel, who at the time I did not know. Yeah. And uh, sure enough, I've gotten to know Craig, and he's been a frequent guest in the whole deal. But I'm like, I want it to work for those two demographics. Yeah. Um, what is it about picking a very specific um, avatar, ideal client that counterintuitively attracts more people? Any thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah. Now, I think, I mean, we both know this is true. You know, like there's this old, um, whatever, copywriting adage of the riches are in the niches. You know, it's like yeah. th- there's something about getting really specific with the person you're talking to. And I remember I was reading something about, um, uh, I was learning about sales writing a little bit just recently. I was listening to this guy's podcast and he was explaining that, uh, the best success, the best tweak or hack that they've ever done to a sales page of theirs was when they can so perfectly define to the visitor their problem. It's like, it's not even about convincing them to buy. It's about defining the problem that they have in such specificity that they're like, 
this person just understands me so well. And in doing so, like he said, their sales just went through the roof. And, and I think we live in an era with so much noise and, you know, we all say this every time. It's like, it's a distracted world that we live in. And so when we can find someone who knows exactly what we are going through, um, I don't know. I just think there's a lot more power in that. Well, I agree a hundred percent with you on that. And, you know, as we're recording this, I'm developing a course on online influence and marketing. And I think that's a key to it. It's being able to identify somebody's pain point. All the marketing stuff would show that. How, how do you, how have you and your wife, Linda, done that on seed time? Like how, yeah. what is language? It's like, you know, it's one thing to say, wouldn't you like to have money in the bank? That's very general. Or wouldn't you like to feel financially secure? Very general. Do you need to get more specific than that? And if so, how, Bob? Like what yeah. would be some typical language to describe your customer? How would you do that? Because I think this is a good exercise for every leader listening. Yeah. Well, yeah, just being completely honest, like this is, I think for us, been uh, one of the most difficult things in our business, like in my last mm -hmm. 15 years of doing this. And um, in the reason why, and, and, and I think everybody um, probably has this excuse or this feeling of, well, it's just particularly hard in my business, you know, whatever. Hmm. And so in our case, some of the things that we're wrestling with is how do we uh, communicate what you're talking about? How do we communicate um, building wealth uh, but not doing it in a way that sounds really scammy or whatever, all these other things, because it's really easy to get off to these extremes really, really quickly. And then particularly with the Christian space, it adds a whole nother of complexity because Christians and money and all the, you know, because the extremes on both sides of that can be really weird and nasty really fast too. So how do we communicate this? You're either broke or a trillionaire or, you know, health and wealth and prosperity. Yeah, yeah it can get weird yeah. fast. I yeah, agree. yeah, for sure. And, and on top of that, like I, you know, have this mission in my heart to not be a cheesy Christian. And so how do we do this in a way too where we're not cheesy? Because so much... Christian stuff tends to be or can be cheesy. And <laughs> like I Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. So anyway, so like we've just wrestled with fighting this and trying to figure out this perfect balance. And we are not there yet. Um, and um, but we're on our way. Uh, but I think the most important thing is to actually have these honest questions and to and to be thinking about it um and evaluating it. And that's kind of where we are with it. We don't have any solutions that we've nailed down. We're like, we've hundred percent hit this yet, but we're trying, Carrie. <laughs> No, I know. And we wrestle through that all the time. So just a little bit of an object lesson. Uh, while we get to the next question, I remember writing a sales page for a course that myself and Mark Clark did called Art of Better Reaching. And my team was working on it. And, you know, what do you put on that top header? And we really thought about it. And, you know, one of my pet peeves, whether I'm preaching or whatever, is don't try to answer questions that nobody is asking. Yeah. Right. Nobody, Nobody's asking uh, what is the percentage of church decline in America in the last uh, 18 years? Like nobody woke up going, gee, I wonder what that, and there is yeah. Google for that. Yeah. So we debated a lot of different headlines, like grow your church or this or that. And you know what we ended up with was just like a thought bubble, just a phrase. And it was, I just don't know why my church isn't growing faster. Mm. That's good. Or I think it might've been, I just don't know why my church isn't growing. Another yeah. guy, um, Ramit Sethi, who I follow and yep. hope to have on this podcast one day. Ramit, if you're listening, hit me up. Anyway, uh, Ramit says, uh, you know, because he teaches financial stuff as well. Same lane Great you do, not from a 
Faith, oh, he's a brilliant copywriter. I've subscribed, I bought his courses, some of them, but I subscribe to his emails just to learn how to write better. And one of the things he says is you could say, uh, and, and I'm doing this case study because this is what you do and this is what our listeners do every day as they try to read people's mail and figure out how they're going to communicate with them in a way that connects. You could say, you know, do you wish you had uh, you know, an extra $3,000 in the bank? Or he just said, this is what it feels like. You go out with a bunch of friends and don't you wish you could just pick up the check? Mm-hmm. Now that's like real language and you're like, oh, I'd love to be in a place where I could just yeah. pick up the check. Or I wish I didn't have to divide the bill so equally or feel bad about that guy who spent extra. And now how do I finagle out of that? And that's like, oh, everybody has been there. I've been there. I don't know whether yeah. you've been there, but sure. I'm like, now you're you're speaking my language. So you're talking about when you talk about copywriting, trying to figure out how to communicate that way. Is that yeah. right? hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. No, that's really good. And that's a, it's a, I love that. And <laughs> I've looked at a lot of Ramit stuff for that same reason. Cause yeah, he's really good at that. He's, he's a genius. He really is. Uh, what are some of the pain points you see in the audience you serve? What are their uh, FAQs, their complaints, their pain points? What are the repeating issues that keep coming up? You know, I think uh, a lot of them tend to be the same things that I dealt with. Um, mm. Like for me, I one of the things that really was an issue for me, I actually just wrote an email about this the other day, uh, recounting a story when I worked in one of my last corporate jobs and I worked for a boss who uh, had a really peculiar rule that she had. And she had a three strike rule where if you were late one minute, three times in a year, you'd be fired. And, um, and we didn't, this wasn't a department where it's like, this is that big of a deal. You know, it wasn't like brain surgery or anything like we're anyway, it just, was kind of an absurd rule. And I remember after I had one strike, my second impending strike, I think, was after a snowstorm and I was going to be late for a snowstorm and I was freaking out about this because if I got the second strike, then it would one more strike. And, you know, and I was living paycheck to paycheck at the time. And so this was just a big deal. Like if I got fired, you know, everything comes crumbling down. And I just felt like that boss owned me. And I hated that feeling of, her having that much control over me um, that my whole live livelihood and um, existence, everything depended on this silly little rule that she created. And then, you know, to contrast that, I had another buddy in a kind of online entrepreneur space. Um, his name's Matt, and he runs a blog, DIY Natural. And he um, was doing this blog, doing it full-time for a few years. And he's a people person. He decided, you know what? I'm going to go get a job at Bread Company. And so he goes and gets a job at Bread Company, not because he needs the money, but just because he wants to spend time around people. And um, and anyway, and so I thought that was pretty hilarious, but it was really funny. A couple months later, after he got this job, uh, I was talking to him and his spouse, and he ends up saying, yeah, I quit. And, I, and he explained why. He's like, yeah, they, I put in my vacation request to um, take off time like two months in advance. And then they called me a week before and said, sorry, we can't do it. And he's like, well, I put it in and they're like, sorry, you can't have the vacation time off. And he said, okay, well, I guess I quit and just, you know, walked away. And like, <laughs> he didn't care. Like he didn't need money. And so <laughs> like, I think that that, when I think of financial freedom, like that kind of freedom to not be a slave to a boss, like that has always been really enticing to me and a really big motivator. And, um, and I think that a lot of the people that we're speaking to, that's something that they want as well. You know what I mean? Hmm. 
Oh, that's so good. That was like a little mini class right there in copywriting. Tell stories like that and uh, your audience kind of leans in. So one of the things you said, you argue that a lot of what we have been taught about money is wrong. How? What do you mean by that? What's wrong? I mean, I think... I think the truth of it is just that we haven't learned about money. I think that's the biggest mm-hmm. problem here. Um, you know, cause I remember being in school and learning about whatever, how to write cursive, which I don't use anymore. Uh, the Dewey decimal <laughs> system, which I don't use anymore. Um, and a variety of other things I don't use anymore, but they didn't teach me about money. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. pretty much you and I and everyone listening, like we all deal with money every single day. So why is this something that we're not learning about more in school? You know, why are we not learning how to earn and how to manage and how to save, you know, all these different things. And the tide's starting to turn a little bit, but we're a long way from what it should be. And so what happens when we don't learn about it, um, and the other part I'll add to that is that I'm fascinated by how many people I hear from who say, yeah, my dad always said in our house, we don't talk about money. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Like that's a pretty common thing. And so we're not learning about it in school. We're not learning about it um, from our parents. Uh, and so what happens is that creates a void that is going to get filled with something. Do you know what I mean? Because there are beliefs about money that are in habits about money that are going to happen. Like everyone listening has beliefs and habits about money. Like whether you intentionally created them or not, that doesn't matter. You have habits with money. You have beliefs about money. And the problem is when that void is there, they get filled with other things. And so the influences um, for our money beliefs become our broke friends, become Instagram influencers or credit card companies, Mm. like any number of different things. But that's where we develop our beliefs about money, which I think you'll agree, none of those are great places for us to be (laughs) developing our beliefs about money. And so that's the biggest problem that I see um, with how so many people are – learning about money and the decisions that they're making. Um, yeah. At this point in our world. I would agree. It was really interesting. You know, I came from a great home. We never really talked about money and other than you should give 10%, right. But how to manage it other than, you know, and I'm naturally a spender. My wife had the same experience. And so we had to figure it out the hard way. And I imagine a lot of people are figuring out the hard way. So the framework for your book or one of the Taglines is you quote Wesley and Wesley's Mm -hmm. uh, famous quote. I want you to give it to me, but your book's called Simple Money, Rich Life. Mm -hmm. But I've heard the quote before, but it hasn't seen as much daylight as you would think. And do you want to give us the Wesley quote and why that's become a mantra for you? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So summing it up, um, we can go back and get the old English version, but I'll give you the modern day version, which is basically make all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. And, um, and I've always loved this quote. It's just really stuck with me. And it has kind of become our mantra for how we handle money. And, uh, and I really think he was on to something with this because, because as we talked about, in the church, there's a lot of, um, yeah, there's a lot of strong feelings in a bunch of different directions with money. Um, you know, there are, yeah, there's certain denominations and there's certain uh, uh, belief systems around money where it's like, you should not make money. Like, you should try to be poor, like, because it's more righteous to be poor. And on the other hand, like, we know some of the other extremes as well. But the thing I love about Wesley and his approach was, I'm going to make as much as I can. I'm going to save as much as I can. When he me- when he says save, he means reduce expenses, just not waste money on stuff. Mm. So I'm going to make as much as I can, not in- reduce my waste so that... I can give as much as I can. So it's not just make as much as I can just so I can build up, you know, stores and barns and wealth on the earth. But it's like, I can use the talents that I have that God has given me to 
um, do something with them and to impact the kingdom of God with them. And I, I just thought that was so cool. And so that's kind of the approach that we've taken um, yeah, over the last few years. Well, your treatment of it, even though I bumped into that quote before, was the first time I really understood that, oh yeah, okay, he's talking about reduce expenditures and live a simple life rather than because make all you can, save all you can, give all you can creates a tension. It's like, well, how can you give all you can if you're saving all you can? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That doesn't make sense. But yours, he was the original minimalist, maybe. Um, is, yeah. that, is, is that it? Did he no, have a for very sure. frugal life or... No, he did. Like, and he was a bit more extreme than I'm willing at this point. Uh, like, basically, uh, and I haven't read that much about him, but um, I forgot what it was, like 30 pounds or 40 pounds or something. Like, he had a salary when his early 20s, and he maintained that amount for the rest of his life, and wow. which ended up being, at certain points, he made today's dollar value of $2 million per year, which is pretty crazy for a preacher, whatever. A lot of money. 200 years ago. So, yeah, it was, um, yeah, but he was a incredibly frugal. Um, yeah, which is part of why, like in the book, uh, the framework that we follow technically is make all you can, save all you can, give all you can, and enjoy it all. Because I do think Wesley could have enjoyed a life a little bit a more. A tiny than, bit more. A little bit yeah. more balanced. Um, but uh, but yeah, but that's the approach that we take. Yeah. Okay. So um, we definitely have some high income earners listening to this show, but we also have a, <clears throat> pardon me, ton of young leaders, many of whom are low income earners. It's pretty easy to give a conversation like this a pass going, well, I'm not going to listen to the rest because I just, you know, I make $30,000 a year. I just, I make minimum wage. I I don't know that I even have any money to spare. What would you say to people who maybe have that dismissal at this point? Yeah, I would say that I completely understand um, because in that last corporate job that I have, I was making $36,000 a year. And I remember how big of a deal it was for me to get a, whatever, $500 a month raise. And I would work my butt off for an entire year to get a 2% raise. And then the thought of actually making any more money, like just seemed like such an impossibility to me because I wasn't raised with a, um, a mindset of, of endless possibilities, like, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Like I just very much felt like this is your lot in your life. This is who you are. This is blah, blah, blah. But, um, but, you know, I'll just tell you from my experience, I I watched, our story is just crazy what we watched God do in our lives because I went from that $36,000 salary and watched that multiply many times over just over the next few years. And, and once you experience that, like you begin to see the world in a different way where you begin to see that more things are possible than you thought possible. And sometimes a lot faster than you think possible. And sometimes things are a lot slower. Like, you know, there's no formula here. But but the point is, is that after having gone through that, I just see the world through a different lens of possibility. And so I would say to somebody who's feeling like that, like, I get that. Like, I, I remember when it was super tight. And, um, you know, but that doesn't mean that it always has to be this way. And I mm. think that, yeah, when you understand that there's a lot more there, even if you can't see how it could ever happen, um, I don't know. You have something to get excited about. You talk about uh, the most important metric and the second most important metric. What do you mean by those? Uh, Yeah, so I tend to believe, you know, because in the whole financial world, there's a whole bunch of different numbers that you can calculate and evaluate and all this stuff. And I really like keeping things as simple as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, uh, so it's part of why the book's named Simple Money, Rich Life. Um, and it's not because it's like elementary. It's just as simple as it needs to be. You know what I mean? Einstein had some quote, something about that. Make everything as simple as it can be, but no simpler. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. And um, and that's how I approach things uh, as much as possible. I try to take the most complicated things and make them really simple. And with all this, like we've determined for us, there's two metrics that we really care about with our finances. And the first one is what we call AUM or assets under management. And this is a term that's commonly used in the financial world. Um, but we've kind of put a new spin on it. And so instead of, we use this to mean our net worth, you know. So a lot of people okay. know this term as net worth. And we've chosen to call it assets under management um, for two particular reasons. Like the first one being that uh, as believers, we believe that um, it's a better term to use. It's a, and it's a better term to use than our net worth because there's something about a number being my total worth or net total worth of value. And this can go either direction because when we started, we had a negative net worth. And so does that I was going to say, there are, are people who have negative net worth, like, right? You know, because that was the first thing we did. First time we calculated, we had a negative net worth. I'm like, wait a minute, is this what I'm worth? Or you have a $5 million net worth. And it's like, man, I am something. I am God's gift to earth, you know? <laughs> but the reality is that number is has nothing to do with the worth that we actually have. And so therefore, I just don't love that term. And then the other thing, like specifically calling it assets under management reminds me that everything I have, everything I've been entrusted with um, is for me to manage for him. Like this isn't my stuff. This is God. I am a steward of what God has put in my hand to manage. And that is a good reminder for me uh, to just stay aware that it's not my money, that I'm just strictly a manager or steward of what he's entrusted me with. So that's why we Mm. use that term. And what's the second most important metric? So yeah, so for us, that is our second most important metric. Our number one uh, metric uh, is what we call our net given. And this is, um, I'll tell you, take you through a little story of how we got here. Mm-hmm. So after we had kind of started calculating our AUM and figuring all this stuff out, uh, I found that because I'm a numbers guy and I like to see things go up, and I found that I was struggling because my wife and I really had a lot of desires in our heart to be able to give a whole lot of money away. I mean, like you're talking about the check, just picking up the check. Like we like doing that stuff. And honestly, we had a desire in our heart from a young age to be able to give away millions of dollars. That was something we really wanted to do. And meanwhile, so we have this desire over here. And then over here, like we have our AUM that we're calculating and we're managing our money as best as we can so we can grow our AUM, aka net worth for those forgot. And um, there's a tension here because we want to give money away, but every time we give money away, our AUM goes down. And so I thought, all right, we got a problem here, God. And so I just kind of prayed about this. I'm like, how do I handle this? Because I have these two things that I want to do. And ultimately, I felt like he led me to tracking our giving. And essentially, kind of the, the logic here is if the most important thing for us to do is to give, if that's the thing that we are most excited about, then we should be tracking that, you know? And and part of the revelation here was that if I look at financial success from an eternal perspective, you know, from the world's perspective, it's about how much you accumulate. But from an eternal mm-hmm. perspective, it's not about how much we accumulate. Like that's like foolish, short-sighted thinking. But from an eternal perspective, it's a lot bigger and different. And so I came to the conclusion that like as a believer, like I should be measuring financial success not by what I accumulate, but by what I give. 
Mm. And so that just kind of changed how we did this. And because that was important to us, we began tracking it. And so we called this our net given. And basically, it's just a running spreadsheet of everything that we've given. And we just total it up. And this way, we're cheering ourselves on, giving a high five. And we're not, it's not to get prideful over anything else or to brag to someone else, but just as a, this is a goal. So this is something that's important to us. This is something we're chasing. And so Linda and I can give each other a high five when we reach a certain milestone. And um, it's been a really big motivator for us. No, you see what, what really amazed me because, you know, I sort of track my giving too, and generosity is really important to me, but I always thought about that as charitable giving, which in my life, my wife's life tends to be about 98% of that goes to the local church. And then we have some other causes that will support at some meaningful level. But, you know, at the end of the day, you get a tax receipt, you don't get a tax receipt for some of it. It doesn't really matter. But that's our net given, Mm -hmm. as you would say. But you have a more expansive definition. Did I read that right? Yeah. No. Like if I leave a tip at a restaurant, does that include, does that go on to the spreadsheet? If I... Like what, what is, or if I just, you know, give something away freely, does that like, how do you calculate that? Or is it just yeah. charitable givings? Yeah. I mean, anyone can take this any way that they want, but for us, like, yeah, we've kind of defined some kind of rules. So like tips at a restaurant, I mean, it's kind of like cost of the thing. So we don't really do that. But if I left a 50% tip, like that's something I might put on the sheet, you know, you know, cause that's ah. a fun thing to do. It's an intentional act of generosity, whereas just giving a 15, 20% tip really isn't really an act of generosity. Um, on the other hand, like if uh, we had one instance where we sold our house to someone and um, as an act of generosity, we wanted to sell it to them below market value and b- below what we knew we could get for it. And so we did that. And so we added that to the sheet. You know, If we hmm. threw a big party for someone and there's a cost associated with that, that's something that you know we might add to the sheet as well. See, that's really good to know because as I think about that, I'm like, oh yeah, maybe, maybe it'd be good to track that because I can see how that becomes addictive. I can see how that becomes yeah, rewarding. And again, not to publish to the internet, but just as a private thing, that'd be highly motivating to me and kind of like, oh, you know, that's good. And I find generosity is the best antidote to greed in my life, hands down. Completely agree. Just that's what it is. It's like, why do I give? Well, God commands it. But secondly, otherwise I'm greedy and it 100% goes to me. And so the more I can give, the more I break the power of greed in my life. And I like that expansive definition. Is that available on your website, that spreadsheet? Or is just like, no, dude, just open Excel or Google Sheets and do it yourself? Or No, we do have a a template on our website. Um, I don't have the link off the top of my head. Maybe you can throw it in the show notes or something. Okay. All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll check that out. Um, what are some other easy keys to saving? Because saving is important. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we talk about in the book that I, I, I mean, I talk about this all the time because I think it's one of the most important things for a lot of people. Like money is different now than it was for our parents uh, right. in the era of checkbooks and cash versus now. And so what's happening now is uh, it's really easy to just not know what's going on with your money because you have Venmo and you have PayPal and you have cards here and there and all this stuff is happening and it's really hard to get a holistic picture of your spending and what's going on. True. Or it's not hard, but this is what's happening for most people. And so they're just making all these decisions based on how things feel and blah, 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 blah. And it's just really squishy. 
And so one of the best things to do is to actually just literally pay attention to where every dollar is going, just like a food journal. You know, so um, dietitians will tell this to you all the time. It's like, keep a food journal and see it, write down exactly everything you eat. And just by doing that, you eat better. You eat less junk food, literally just by doing it. And it's the same way with spending. Like when you write down everything you spend, like you will spend less money. Like you don't have to try to spend less money, but you will spend less money. And so personally, I'm not a big fan of the write everything down, but there are apps that you can use. Um, and just by doing that, you know, so like personal capital or mint.com, both of these apps will allow you to plug everything in. You can instantly see where you've spent your money for the last three months or whatever. And then um, just checking that on a regular basis, see what's going on. And so even if you don't try to make any changes to your spending, just doing that and paying attention, like you will spend less money. Hmm. That's good. Do you have any thoughts about cash versus credit versus whatever? There are some people who would say, don't even have a credit card. It's all going to come out of your bank account. Because I agree, it can get, it's a pretty fractionalized world right now when you th think about all the different ways you spend money. And then, you know, all the stuff that's set up for auto debit out of your account, right? Maybe yeah. to your credit card or, you know, you got your Netflix coming off, then you have this and you have that. Like it, it adds up fast. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think the the whole cash thing, you know, has gone the way of Route 66. Like, it's just... Yeah. It, that was a nice era, but, like, there's no way we're going back. Like, it's... Yeah. Um, and it's a really hard, you know, like, I know some people use um, um, budgeting envelopes and put cash in their envelopes and stuff. And I'm like, all right. It was hard in the you. 90s, man. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, if you can pull that off and buy everything with cash, like, that's great. But, um, but I mean, even in 2020, like, uh, we saw tons of stores that would not take cash. It's mm -hmm. like, all right, well, anyway. So the fact is, is that we're moving to electronic. We're, we're already in an electronic era when it comes to money and currency. But um, in terms of debit or credit, like, we have a couple rules with our credit cards that, um, that we follow. But... You know, so we use both. We have a debit card and a credit card. Um, but for using a credit card, like because we couldn't, when we first got married, we couldn't handle credit cards because we mm. we had spending problems and they caused more problems. And so we got rid of credit cards. We didn't have credit cards for probably seven years. But um, but we started using them again. We made three rules for ourselves, and we said if we violate these rules, then we're just cut them up and go back to debit card. And so the number one rule was to um, never use them for discretionary expenses. And so. My point with that was basically that I can't go to the grocery store and use a credit card. I can't go to, um, I don't know, Lowe's and use a credit card or any kind of spending money thing like that. Um, because that was something for me that was going to balloon and get too big and I wouldn't have any control over it. Now, the credit card I can use for things that really aren't discretionary, maybe paying certain bills that I know, the electric bill. Like there's no temptation for me to increase our electric bill overspend or on power <laughs> yeah yeah anything yeah. like that like there's no temptation there so it's kind of eliminating that temptation to overspend that's essentially what's happening um and then the the second and probably most important rule for us was to never carry a balance and we decided if we never carry a balance then we'd be okay we're never going to pay interest charge on this card and so we made a pact that if we ever did carry a balance for one month we just cut it up and be done and, uh, and I think that's served us really well. And I think it would serve a lot of people well to um, kind of create that rule in their life. And then the third rule for us was um, the whole reason we kind of opened them up again is if we're going to get a credit card, we're going to make it work for us. So it's going to, it has to provide some good rewards. And that was something that um, was really important to us. But we quickly realized that 
there's a lot of potential here. And so we ended up over a five-year period um, getting about 100 flights, 100 hotel nights completely free just from credit card rewards. Um, and, and I think what most people don't realize is that because there's a million uh, rewards credit cards out there, but most people don't realize is that the difference between a bad rewards credit card and a good one isn't like you know twice as good. It's like 50 times as good. It's like very, really? very different. It's a big, big difference. And so um, if you're going to have a credit card, don't just get one because they give you a t-shirt to sign up. Like actually get a good credit card. And so, um, so yeah. What, what are, with it, you know, and I really believe with you, you should never carry a balance if you have a credit card, et cetera, et cetera. But- uh, I've been following the points guy a little bit just to yeah. see because uh, I'm paying for a trip this year, really just based on accumulated points. Um, yep. I wasn't able to fly anywhere for a while, so I've got over a million points on one particular card in one point system that we'll use to to fly places. And um, are there, without you know giving just one thing, are there certain cards that you would say, pay attention to these, they're better than others? Again, yeah. with the caveat, don't spend yourself into debt, guys. Don't spend yourself into debt. But if you're going to use a credit agree. card, what are some of the better ones? Yeah. So, yeah. So we've created a page on our site where I'm like kind of updating my current recommendations and stuff like that. But at the moment, like I would say Chase Sapphire Preferred is, it's a great card. It's one that I've loved for a long, long time. There's a lot of perks with it. Um, and that's a great one to consider. Um, from a business perspective, one that we've been doing, I don't know if you're doing any paid ads, Carrie, but um, Chase Inc. Business. Uh, what we've loved about that card is they pay three times points on any ad spend, online ad spend. Oh, so, really? Like Facebook yeah. ads and that kind of thing? Yeah. And so I did not know that. So oh, if you're doing any great. ad spend, you can really, they can add up, adds real, up real quickly. It yeah, adds up. For sure. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Okay. I did not know that. That's good to know. Okay. And we'll, we'll link to everything in the show notes. Bob, this has been a fascinating conversation, particularly excited about the journey that you've been on. Any final word to people about how they handle money? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, like I just want, um, you know, particularly particularly those of us who are Christians to understand that um, money is not a goal. Like this isn't something that, um, I don't know, because I think so much of the world, like just it's all about the goal. Like almost every financial book out there is like the goal of making more money. And I think when we understand that it's not a goal, but it's a tool that mm. God given us to fulfill whatever assignment he has for us on earth. And I think when we get that, like it changes the whole perspective of money. And I don't know, it just, it just eliminates a lot of the, the noise and the distractions from the whole thing. And I, that's the thing I really want people to walk away with. Like understand that money is a tool, you know, when we all have different assignments on earth, some people have, you know, an assignment that might require a bigger salary than others. But, um, but when you see it that way, I, I don't know, it just changes your perspective. Hmm. Well, Bob, thanks so much for sharing with us today. Where can people find you in Seed Time Online? And tell us about yeah. the book. Yeah. So yeah, the book, like you said, Simple Money, Rich Life, um, simplemoneybook.com. I think you can go and get it. Um, if this is before the launch, pre-order bonuses, all that stuff there. Um, yeah, seedtime.com is our main website. And, um, and that's the gist of it. You can find us anywhere else at Seed Time. Bob, thanks so much. Appreciate you. All right. Thanks, Carrie. Well, there were some fresh takes in that, were there not? And I listened to a lot of stuff about money, uh, both as a pastor, just trying to help get people on a healthy financial page, and also as somebody who's trying to practice good stewardship in my own life. If you want more, you can get the show notes. We give them to you absolutely free every single week. Go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 4 
and you'll find them there. I've got a really exciting episode coming up next time. And uh, I want to thank our partners for this episode as well. You can learn how you can accelerate generosity in your church with a free 45-minute discovery session by going to generis.com slash carry. That's G-E-N-E-R-I-S dot com slash carry. And if you want to know where your church is at in its life cycle or what the future sort of looks like for your church, take the unstuck assessment for free by heading over to the unstuckgroup.com slash carry. That's the unstuckgroup.com slash carry. And thanks again to our partners for bringing you these episodes week in and week out. And next week, I've got a great interview that I'm very excited to share with you. Philip Yancey is on the podcast for the first time. And uh, well, we talk about growing up in a church he describes as white, racist, and paranoid. And uh, he went through deconstruction of his faith as a teenager and then reconstructed it and has become an author that so many of us have have respected and appreciated over the years. Here's an excerpt. It was talked in my church. I heard it from two different churches growing up. And it became an easy, oh, that's why, that's why blacks are like that. And they, you'll never see, I remember this evangelist, you'll never see an African-American, which of course he didn't call him that. You'll never see an African-American person as CEO or head of a country or they're good at serving. They make good waiters and make good servants. And you can almost, you can hardly believe that anybody would come up with that, but it was taught from the pulpit. So that's next time. And if you're an ex-evangelical or deconstructing your faith, or even you can't figure out why so many people are, I think you're going to love next episode. We also have coming up Francesca Gino, Levi Lusco, and Voskamp. Dave Ramsey is locked in. I'm so excited for that and a lot more. And speaking of a lot more, you've heard the new intro to this podcast. We just announced the launch of the Art of Leadership Network, which is our podcast network. If you haven't checked out the shows that we're offering, go to theartofleadershipnetwork.com. But today, I want to give you a sneak peek at something even bigger that is coming up. See, as a leader, there's a lot of obstacles and challenges you face that no one ever prepares you for. And I think we've experienced the result. Leading your organization forward ends up feeling like a mystery. And it doesn't have to remain that way. So I graduated law school. Nobody told me how to run a law firm. I graduated seminary. Nobody prepared me to lead a church. I had to figure it all out the hard way. Well, next week, the art of leadership is going much deeper than just a podcast network. We're launching an academy. And inside the Art of Leadership Academy, we are launching a platform that will equip you with everything you need to lead, run, and grow your organization with clarity. That's true if you're a church leader. It's true if you're an entrepreneur or business leader. I'm so excited to share that we've got a number of top flight leaders, many of whom you know through this podcast, that are going to be regularly active and making appearances inside the Academy The best way to stay in the loop is to join my email list. So if you want more about the Art of Leadership Academy, just go to kerryneuhoff.com slash email. We'll keep you absolutely up to date. It is going to be fantastic. We've been working on this for about six months, and I can't wait to roll it out. It is far more than we've ever done for leaders, and I think you're going to love it. So check it out. And the best way to stay in touch is to go to kerryneuhoff.com slash email. Sign up for my email list. We have about 85,000 leaders on that list and would love to add you to the mix. 
So uh, yeah, there's a lot going on and we're going to keep doing this as well. But uh, I just wanted to share that with you. We are very, very pumped. The team's been working hard. I think this is going to deliver a whole lot of value in a really fresh way. Thank you so much for listening. I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.